And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a high school social studies teacher, a middle and high school principal, and now coach and support school leaders here in the Los Angeles area. And as always, I'm joined by... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. And I'm a high school history teacher. I've been at it for 15 years in counting. And this is All the Above, a show where we take an unstandardized look at education because mainstream media outlets don't really talk about education very much. Bunch of haters. <laughs> so take a look at the links in the description so that you could get to our audio-only podcast if you want to listen on the go. Head over to our website to see previous episodes. And make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss future episodes. Now for today's All of the Above, what do we have on the agenda? Well, man, well, we got a good one. Uh, we per, always do. Per usual, if I might be so bold to say so. Uh, but of course, we're going to kick it off with our do now, where we get into those fascinating headlines in education, all the good, juicy stuff that uh, people should be talking about, but that probably nobody's going to tell you about. Haters. Um, and then we're going to transition into our main segment, where, uh, you know, last episode we talked about some of these tensions between teachers and administrators, and we thought it'd be cool to help kind of connect um, with our wonderful viewing audience uh, and folks listening to the podcast. Um, connect a little bit of our personal story. So our own journeys. How do we become the educators that we are um, as two folks who have taught in several districts across the country, um, as two black men in education? Um, how do we come to where we are and what, what keeps us in the profession? So we're going to dig into that today and uh, hopefully uh, connect a bit more with our audience. Absolutely, absolutely. First up, though, is the do now. Let's take a look at this week's headlines. All right, folks, it's time for today's do now. Manuel, yep. how are we going to do it today? Man, Jeff, it's report card time. Mm. Yes, we got to look at some grades. Yeah. And first up, be our first grade. Better hurry home and get the mail before mom gets home. Nah, it's electronic now, man. They just log in. They just got to hit their login and see that, man. Okay. No okay. more playing those games. All right. First grade is a B. Uh so, Mr. Russell, what, what can I do? Can I do a little more work? Get that up to an A? Like uh, 85, round, 85 rounds up to 90. It's not right? always about grades. It's not always about grades. And this B, <laughs> we can change because this B is about bias. Oh, Ooh. okay. Ooh. All right. I didn't see that coming. I didn't. Left All field. right. <laughs> so, according to a 2016 report by the Urban Institute, people still have tremendous amounts of bias when they hear the terms urban or inner city, mm. particularly as it relates to schools. So this report found that although the country's public school system in the decades since 2005 has shown tremendous gains and schools in large cities have seen gains at double the rate of schools in suburban and rural areas, people still have or still harbor incredible bias against urban schools and inner, and inner city schools. The achievement gap between urban and suburban and rural closed nearly a third during the decades since 2005. And in some cases, it's non-existent. But middle-class white parents tend to make assumptions otherwise, and research suggests that those assumptions are largely results of racial biases. Jeff, does it surprise you that even if a urban school is doing great and making great gains, um, a lot of white parents still associate that school with ne negative impressions and negative thoughts? No, not even no. slightly. Um, I, you know, it pains me a little bit to say that, but. Uh, 
this is a this is a fascinating story because it, it involves the intersection of two studies here, mm -hmm. right? So one study looking at uh, the the closing of the achievement gap or the relative closing of the achievement gap over the last decade, right. and then another study looking at white parents' perceptions of the relative urbanness, right. uh, urban being one of those, you know, sort of coded words yeah. that can kind of mean whatever the speaker wants it to mean in a lot of ways, but we use this as a euphemism essentially uh, to, to politely say poor black and brown, right? right? And so um, this study examining people's uh, kind of uh, stuck in the mud um, attitudes about the term urban and how they would describe their own school and and the reality of improving schools and yet people still not feeling like the perception of those schools is any better even though the results are objectively better right, right? so uh, I think this this goes right to the heart of like the the deep dark ugly underbelly of, of yeah. the United States of America and the fact that we built you know chocolate cities and vanilla suburbs and we you know this this gets to all the history right. here right and it's about people making choices about where to put their kids so it doesn't right. surprise me at all it, it saddens me but it doesn't surprise me yeah and what what was really interesting to me was that these are schools and in, in areas that weren't necessarily in the center of a large city so uh, a school in what would be considered outside the center in traditional suburb area that had poor performance was more likely to be referred to as an urban school, despite the fact that it wasn't necessarily technically and geographically in the urban area. Yeah. And um, study also found that um, white families were, for every 1% gain in the achievement of their local school, they were 15% less likely to refer to their school as an urban school. Mm. Um, so the, the better the performance, the less likely they would be to refer to that school as an urban school. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, one of the the uh, sort of intersectional factors here is around the impact of gentrification, mm. right? So as cities become gentrified and poverty expands right. outside of the sort of urban core to areas that we used to call the suburbs, but now we're calling urban, uh, we're seeing the same problems manifest in those communities that we used to have when we when we had the more yeah. sort of strict chocolate city vanilla suburb phenomenon. Now we're, I guess, going more for the European model, uh, you know, vanilla city uh, chocolate suburb, uh, yeah, so yeah. to speak. So it again um, shows us that really it's it's never quite about the performance or location or anything. It's really about the students who are sitting there. Um, in those rooms and when these families, um, they, they talk about Chicago public schools, for example, and how uh, a lot of schools in Chicago um, are doing much better than they used to, but still there's this, this desire to keep, uh, for, desire from white families to keep their kids out of Chicago public schools. Um, a lot of times, no matter what the performance is, no matter what um, the indicator suggests, like just seeing those black and brown uh, students in there is, is enough. And then adding the, the, the term urban or inner city, just forget about it. Like yeah. you said, like it's not even about the performance is really about old school segregation. Yeah, yeah, same same song, different different day in yeah. many ways. Yeah. All right, next grade. All right, next grade, Manuel, is a C. A C. Yeah. All right, about average, about average. Mm -hmm. Not not bad. I'm passing. I'm getting my credit. Okay. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Feeling good. C in this particular case for community college, and C for convicted felons. Whoa. Interesting. That's right? the interesting dynamic. So fascinating recent article uh, on the website LAist uh, for local folks here. It's a, a you know, sort of 
um, local journalism web-based source for mm -hmm. folks. Um, and this article reported that the state of California is giving out about $5 million in grants designed to help our community colleges and some uh, select four-year schools in the state to enroll, educate, and support those who've been formerly incarcerated. Um, so this is a, you know, it's an interesting development, maybe not totally surprising because we have this growing bipartisan movement nationally where, um, you know, we found agreement, right. surprisingly, between Democrats and Republicans about the need to address our criminal justice system, maybe because it's so inordinately expensive um, with the cost of incarceration in California exceeding the cost of attendance at Harvard per person. Uh, so we might want to do something about that. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's an interesting development. Uh, what, what, what do you think here, Manuel? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm really, um, really a fan of this because, you know, I've had, unfortunately, um, several students who have found themselves incarcerated um, either during school or, or afterwards. And a lot of the, the reasons behind that are youthful reasons, if anything. I mean, research suggests that as someone grows older in age, they're less likely to commit uh, a lot of the crimes that land somebody behind bars. So one would hope that, you know, as uh, years pass and a person um, regains their freedom, that they have a chance to re-enter society and get the sort of training and education they need to be productive, uh, productive people in society because um, whoever that old them was, they might have, matured, might have matured out of that. And in this article, actually, what, something that really stands out is that um, LA City College enrolled 115 formerly incarcerated students from last year, and all 115, according to this article, fared very well and yeah. succeeded in their classes that they were enrolled in. Yeah, and remained uh, outside of prison. Yes, exactly. Right? So, uh, you know, I, I guess we probably don't have enough data to prove a cause-effect relationship there, but there's just no way under the sun that this hurt their chances of, of staying out of prison, right. right? And so for the economic you know, reason alone, the $75,000 a year we pay to incarcerate people, this is a bad use of resources. Absolutely. But the, the moral reasons that come along with that. And you know, as educators, uh, I'm sure you know, you've seen plenty of students who are struggling with the, the impact of having incarcerated parents or incarcerated siblings uh, you know, or other uh, close family members and what right. that does to a student's ability to focus, learn, uh, you know, uh, pay attention, all of those sorts of things. And so, um, you know, this is one of those policies that I think probably has like a really positive ripple effect, right? right? There's the individual who's getting educated, there's their family, there's their kids and the, the intergenerational effect of this. And then there's our public dollars, right? right? Like all positively affected ideally by, by this type of program with a really tiny investment, frankly. So Right. You would think there's no argument against this, but I'm you know, I'm I'm, I'm thinking about us when we post this video to Facebook yeah. and and I'm sure there's gonna be some trolls coming out saying why are we spending public money on these on these criminals so that mm -hmm. that's the deal. I get locked up and go to go to prison and come out and you should've, pay for my college. Pull harder on those bootstraps. All, all that and then it's bootstraps. just like you bootstraps, man. Yeah. Just gotta pull Hard on like those Donald joints. Trump, he did it all by himself. All, all the way all up. he got was a small forty million dollar loan from his pennies, dad. You know, pennies, man. he had to pennies, go to Manhattan, man. all the way from Queens. Yeah, man. Think of the think of the struggle. And now these guys just get free college. Wow, <laughs> exactly. wow, exactly. All right, last grade for today. What do we got? What do we got? Oh, final grade for today is an an F, mm. a big fat F. Cuts deep. Yeah, that's man. why you got to get home before the mail arrives. See, unfortunately, it's going straight <laughs> straight to the computer, man. The yeah, internet. I know, I'm old school. 
So this F goes out to, um, or this F is in reference to a study that came out that showed some, some really troubling outcomes for uh, students in Louisiana schools who um, weren't allowed to advance based on their test scores. So test-based retention in eighth grade increases the likelihood of criminal conviction by age 25, according to a new study by the National Bureau of Economic Research. And what they did is they looked at students from 1998 through 2001 um, who were held back just because they scored one point below the cutoff on state tests that they mm -hmm. needed to advance into middle school and they, or advance into high school. And they looked at that set of students and, and looked at their uh, eventual outcomes and found that um, being held back increased the likelihood of being convicted by 58%. Yeah. Uh, so this story really hit home with me personally um, because the school that I was principal of in New York uh, City, uh, New York State has a, uh, you know, a test-based promotion criteria. Mm. And so um, I was principal of a middle school and a high school. So we, within the same school, had kids, um, thankfully a small number of kids, but um, you know, kids who were at risk of being retained in eighth grade, not able to move on to ninth grade because of this, this uh, you know, they didn't pass the, the state exam, right? And so um, I, I think the larger debate about social promotion is interesting, right? Um, you know, I get the moral righteousness on both sides, but I think we really need to think about like to feel good in the moment, what are the long-term consequences? Like, what are we doing to the life trajectory of kids if we are holding them back? And I'm not saying that means we should just keep passing all the kids through and they can't read when they get to mm -hmm. high school. And, you know, I'm not saying that's what we should do, but I think there's something better that we can do, particularly at a pivotal developmental point, like eighth grade, right. uh, that really makes us, I think, should make us rethink this type of policy. Yeah, absolutely. And this this is a policy that I'm not familiar with at all because, you know, I grew up in California and, and there wasn't any test that you needed to, to advance and get into high school. So I have no experience in this idea of holding somebody back based on their test scores. That to me just, it screams like horrible idea. But on the other hand, I also have wide experience of having uh, ninth grade and 10th grade students who basically failed everything through sixth grade, seventh grade and eighth grade. And the question becomes like, how do they end up this far? Like at some point, like, you know, there's gotta be something. So there yeah. needs to be some, some solution or some, um, some balance there because on the one hand, you don't wanna just send a message that it's just a free pass. You just move all the way on through and then 12th grade will decide if you cross the stage or not. Um, but on the other hand, like looking at this, you know, this one particular study, and this was just looking at the likelihood to, to be convicted of a crime um, later on. What about all the other and a positive, violent, crime, violent, later violent crime later on? What about all the other possible negative outcomes associated with being held back, whether it be um, physical health, whether it be you know uh, family relations, whether it be whatever? Uh, just really, really, really troubling. This is a, a, a valid F as far as our grades are concerned. <laughs> I know we kind of you know do the great thing kind of tongue in cheek, but this is this is terrible. Yeah. I think I, you know, having come up in New York and, mm -hmm. and uh, being sort of reared as an educator within that system, uh, I don't think it's necessarily a, an inherently evil system. Mm -hmm. I do think there are a few pain points along the way where especially the idea of um, prohibiting social promotion is counterproductive. Right. Um, anybody who works with kids knows that when you see ninth graders in September and then you see ninth graders in June, those are two different human beings. Like right. One of them is a kid and one of them is a 
young adult. Right, right, right. right. And, uh, and so obviously, you know, each child is an individual, but, um, you know, that's such a pivotal developmental, uh, physical maturation moment in adolescence that I think there's all kinds of problematic reasons that, uh, that should outweigh even very righteous academic reasons to make purely test-based social promotion decisions, right? If we really think that overall, developmentally, a child is not ready to move on to high school, that's a different question than saying, uh, you know, they didn't pass this test, therefore they shouldn't move on. And this study really dramatizes it because they're looking at, they're comparing kids who are one, one point, point below one the, point. the cut score and one point above right. the cut score. So even from a psychometrician standpoint, these are essentially identically performing students, right? right? Um, and looking at the impact of being held back on those two populations or not on those two populations, right? So, I, you know, I, there's just so much here that to me screams, we got to like be sensible and do things better. I don't think it means that the, the, the impulse to say social promotion just willy-nilly can mm -hmm. be problematic too. I, I do agree. I think there's a, you know, there is a, a need to have some accountability to what needs to be learned along the way. So we're not just passing kids through, which is its own kind of, you know, right. soft bigotry of low expectations to, to quote a Bush here on the show again. I don't know why I keep doing that. You're a big but, fan. Uh, <laughs> but you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. All right, people, let us know your thoughts about these stories. Chime in below, and um, don't forget to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. All right, now if you remember back to last episode, we, have a, we had a discussion about sort of teacher-administrator dynamics and, you know, some of the, um, um, I the, guess... The mad teacher came out right here. Yeah, man. Yeah, <laughs> Threw man. me under the bus a few times. <laughs> Still got lumps. So that had us thinking about, you know, we've never really um, gone into our, our history in, in terms of why we entered the profession in the first place. Because whether you're a teacher or an administrator or, or work anywhere in education, there's definitely that, that lucid, clear moment for you where you decided to enter the field and become a teacher or, or, or whatever your role is in education. And we thought we'd take some time to share with the audience a little bit about um, what led us to education and what our origin stories are. So if you're familiar with comic books, and I think we all are because comic books are amazing, every superhero has an origin story, a story that really made them who they are. And um, our two of my colleagues from Sacramento, uh, Siobhan Riley and Casey McCarthy, um, they had a podcast where they would, for each guest, they'd ask them their origin story, where, what made them the teacher that they are, and what, what led them to the field. So um, we thought we'd steal that idea with their permission and uh, share a little, about, a little bit about our origin stories. So, Jeff, how'd you enter this field? What led you to teaching in the first place? Well, I think for me, actually, uh, what led me to teaching was the idea of becoming a principal, oddly mm. enough. So, um, Natural born administrator. May, uh, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, in high school, at the end of high school, we had to do a career exploration project um, and uh, for, for a class. And um, perhaps out of um, sheer laziness more than anything, <laughs> senioritis more than anything else, I decided um, that, uh, that I was going to shadow our principal, uh, principal of my high school. So I went to St. Paul Central High School, uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, and um, the, the incredible Mary McBee um, was principal at the time. 
Um, she is still principal. Uh, yeah, I went back. Okay. I went back. I was on the committee for the 20 year reunion. Oh, wow. And I just met up, uh, you know, last summer with Mary. Um, but you're a principal in, coach now. In, Did you coach her up some? Did you? I don't think she needs my coach. Okay. Man. But this allegedly is her, her final year, and she's really. Oh, wow. That's to super retire. dope. Shout out to her. That's Yeah, dope. I think 20, 24 years of being a principal, oh, which wow. is, is truly mind boggling to me. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, she was just a really interesting, fascinating person and, uh, you know, a dynamic leader, I think, and someone that I, um, you know, I, I, I kind of had a connection with and was inspired by and felt like, you know, this is interesting and maybe this is something I would, I would want to do. Um, and I think I've always had interest in social justice causes. You know, I was doing a lot of reading, even in high school. Um, and, uh, you know, I felt like education is a place where my interest in social justice, my, um, my sort of desire and interest in like organizational leadership and the challenges of like, how do you get a big group of people to like organize themselves and, and do something really good? Right. Um, you know, th those are two things I find really interesting and, and a great reason to get out of bed in the morning together. And I think I started saying, I, I want to become a principal. Um, and so, uh, you know, that was always in the back of my mind in college and I took a bunch of education classes and um, at the end of college, uh, my decision kind of came down to law school or ed school. Mm. And I was uh, very tormented about the choice. <laughs> you know, I, I was like, do I, do I want to try to become Thurgood Marshall or do I want right. to try to become Mary McBee, right? Mm. Um, and so... Uh, you know, I wound up getting a, a fellowship um, that was going to pay for my uh, a good chunk of my grad school tuition for uh, for education, and so I, I decided to uh, to do that. And um, I deferred for a year, and I, I worked as a college admissions officer. And uh, a year later, I showed up um, at yeah. Harvard Graduate School of Education and and ran into you. Yeah. <laughs> so. Literally ran into me. That's yeah. for another day. That's, that's for another day. But man, uh, literally, we'll, we'll put that in the episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's great. Yeah. I, you know, my my story similarly starts around around high school. Um, for me, I always was. I guess I always wanted to do good. I was a do-gooder. I wanted to do good with my life. I, I felt whatever I, um, I I get into in terms of my career, I wanted it to mean something to people. And um, so I had a little little thoughts about like oh, teaching could be one potential spot in my history teacher, my favorite uh, teacher in high school, uh, Mr. Forbes, shout out Mr. Forbes. Um, he started a, a, a little club for aspiring teachers. It, it lasted, I think, one meeting, but like that's the first Nerd time. Nerd alert. <laughs> Nerd alert. Shut up. Um, <laughs> that's the first time that I remember like really thinking like, oh, wait, okay, teaching profession, like real possibility concrete. Yeah. But then, you know, that faded over time and. Um, I went to college and I went to UCLA and my freshman class at UCLA was the first class of admits since Prop 209. Now, for those of you who aren't from California, who aren't familiar, Prop 209 was basically the end of uh, race-based admissions in the state of California. Um, not just for admission. It, it was the end of affirmative action in California. Yeah. And the um, ad campaign for Prop 209 prominently featured Martin Luther King and excerpts of him saying that, in, you know, envisioning a world where we don't judge anybody by the color of their skin and mm -hmm. uh, we're spearheaded by Ward Connerly. I'm going to reserve my words for Ward Connerly uh, from this episode because this is a generally clean show. Um, but in any case, so I got to UCLA, 
my orientation, you know, they had several orientations because there's some like 5,000 students that um, enter each year. And my orientation was about 300 students and I was the only black male in there. Uh, actually, no, there was one other, shout out to Marcus. And um, just, mm. it was just a sea of, of, of white and it just wasn't what I expected because my older sister went to UCLA and when I was in middle school, I would visit her and, and um, it was just a vibrant campus and it's just so diverse and so, but you know, being there as a freshman and just being in class after class after class where there was just nobody who looked like me was just real, a real culture shock that I wasn't um, prepared for coming from my neighborhood of South Sacramento. And um, so that led me to start questioning like, well, why, why is there this imbalance? Because I just, yeah. I had never been, I ne it never crossed my mind this idea of like um, um, what some would call an achievement gap and others would call uh, opportunity gap. That never really crossed my mind because my school, my high school was pretty diverse and I don't know. Um, again, I was a do-gooder, everything seemed great. And I remember walking to class one day, it was a hot day, and um, UCLA's campus has a lot of hills. I was sweating getting to class, and they were preparing tents for the Los Angeles Festival of Books, which used to take place on uh, UCLA's campus. Now I think it's at USC's campus. So these massive tents, and all, every single worker that was helping put these tents up in the heat, every single one was uh, a Latinx male. And looking around at the students, there wasn't a very heavy Latinx population. I was, mm. remember thinking like, man, all the, labor is being done by people of color, but the people in class aren't um, representative of those same communities. And LA is one of the most diverse areas and one of the most diverse states in the nation. And the, the student body should look different than this. So that led me to education classes so I could find some answers to this. And long story short, that put me on the path to become a teacher, to try to help others from marginalized communities get into UCLA so that they wouldn't have the same isolated experience that I felt I had. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that definitely resonates uh, with me, too. I think I was a sim similar uh, nerd alert uh, high school <laughs> student. Uh, and, you know, it's funny how that, um, you know, some of those early experiences, even in high school, you know, stick with you and kind of right. drive you to, to continue to do the work that um, that you're doing today. But but speaking of that, um, so so that's the origin story and right. sort of how you started on this course. What what keeps you in this course? I mean, you're a um, you know a, a very intelligent, accomplished person. Mm -hmm. You could you could do lots of different things. Right. Um, but why have you made the choice and the commitment to to say not only uh, I'm going to stay in education, but I'm going to stay in as a classroom teacher for you right. know the last 15 years? Yeah, and I, I think actually it has everything to do with my original reason for um, becoming a teacher in the first place. Um, and I think that's one of the interesting aspects of discussing with anybody why they became a teacher because I think uh, people's uh, reasons for becoming a teacher have a really big influence on their experiences in the profession and their long-term outcome in the profession. Um, so for me, um, seeing it as uh, doing the work for the community, um, that's one reason why I've only taught in schools where um, I had students where I could see myself in, in my students mm -hmm. um, and I had students who I knew needed that support. So I remember being an undergrad and um, a classmate in one of my classes talked to, told me that she had her school gave two copies of every textbook to all their students because they didn't want students to hurt their backs. So they had the copy to stay at school and then a copy to take home. And I remember thinking like, well, damn, some schools, you they don't even trust the kids with the copy of the textbook. Like you got to keep it in the class. Um, so um, with that in mind, like I've always been dedicated to serving in schools where um, I felt that there were students who who, who needed that that type of support in, in doing that work. Mm. And that's that's what kept me going and that's why I don't, I don't think that I could see myself in a school um, where students um, come from families that are, college, are 
more uh, likely to be college educated and affluent and have SAT tutors and have all that help because I just wouldn't feel that they need me for that because somebody would take care of them. Um, so for me, it's really been about like reaching out to my own community in that sense. And as far as staying in the classroom, we talked about that on the very first episode of All the Above way back then, mm -hmm. way back when, episode one of season one. And, um, you know, audio visual is a little interesting there, but um, <laughs> we talked we've about- We've matured. We've matured a bit. Yeah. Um, but I spoke about the career ladder and just thinking that, you know, uh, teaching is such a rewarding experience for me. I get my energy from students. So, um, and I feel like I could still lead outside the classroom in different ways. So it's just, it's where I fit and it's just where I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Well, I, you know, I think to me, um, I have, I've worked in a bunch of different contexts, I think, within education. Obviously, classroom teacher. Um, I worked for a nonprofit um, that was, um, that managed a network of schools within the New York City Department of Education as a, a leadership coach to administrators and teacher leaders. Uh, I, I returned to a school as an, as an assistant principal and then a principal and um, you know, now work again for a sort of nonprofit district partner, but more in the school transformation context uh, now. And I also um, have a consulting practice that lets me um, you know, do some really wonderful work with uh, schools and leaders across the country. And so um, I think for me, you know, even though I have done a lot of different things, mm. I still very much consider myself a, a career educator and very much still hold at my heart, I think, both the roles of, of principal and, and of teacher. Because uh, I think in some ways they're sort of like the, the purest roles in, in education, at least from my vantage point. Um, and uh, and I, I think that, you know, in my heart, still in my heart and in my soul is, um, you know, as someone who wants to get up in the morning and feel like the thing that I'm about to go spend eight, 10, 12, 14 hours doing today is not only interesting and fulfilling on some personal level, but is also like helping to make the world a better place. And, you know, I think that's a phrase that we toss around and, you know, sometimes considered hokey. I, I mean that in like a very sober, literal sense that like, I want to know that what I'm working on is helping to make our world a little bit better than it was when I woke up this morning. And I'm, I'm not, you know, um, just seeing the world in rose-colored glasses and assuming that some days we don't take a step backwards and some days a, right. a step forward. But, um, but I do believe that education offers me the opportunity to both, you know, have a job that I really enjoy and feel feel fulfilled by, but also feel with a high degree of confidence that like we're contributing to something worthy and, and worthwhile here. Um, and you know, education is the backbone institution in my personal view of, a, of any democratic uh, democracy, small mm. d uh, democratic society. Um, and also you know, such, a, such a cornerstone for people's development into right. good human beings. And I think that's, that's what we do. You know, some people go to work and they make Big Macs and some people go to work and they make monster trucks and some people go to work and they make hedge funds. And we go to work and we make good people right. um, and healthy communities. And that's exciting, man. Like, I, you yeah. know, what's better than that? <laughs> yeah. Even on the days when it's a little rough, uh, oh, yeah. I still think to myself, like, damn, this is, this is good stuff, too. And that's the thing. I think a lot of teachers, um, 
myself for sure um, relate to that and yeah. we view the profession similarly in terms of you know at the end of the day when you know the light goes dim and you look back on your life you feel that you've contributed as much as you can to make the world a better place for others um, but I think there's also a lot of teachers who for whom the profession maybe either wasn't their first choice or they saw it as a temporary thing I'll teach a little bit until I do this I've known teachers that you know taught for like two years and then went to law school or then went to med school and sort of used it sort of as like a almost like a resume builder in the sense of like, oh, I, I did the work on the front lines and, you know, um, and that really rubs me the wrong way. And maybe that's for another, another time. But I think a teacher's reasons for entering the profession and staying in the profession have a lot to do with the, the actual input or the, the, the amount that they put into it. Um, and I think students could tell that also, like big time. Yeah. Um, so is it what you expected or thought it would be when you're looking at Principal McBee and thinking about that as your potential future? I think so. I think in a lot of ways, yes. Um, I think teaching was probably more what I thought it was going to be than being a principal was. Um, I think being a principal was harder than I thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways, they're very mirrored experiences. Like mm -hmm. you come into first year teacher and you're like, I'm going to change the world. Right. And then you're like, oh, snap, I got to get everybody to be able to like pass in homework coherently. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like I got to be able to like get folks to listen to me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's very humbling. Right. Um, and I think being a principal, very much um, a similar experience there's just so much and maybe this is also a reflection of the poor quality of our preparation programs which is also its own episode uh, right. <laughs> in the future but um, there's just so much that you you know you don't know and there's not a, a manual for or there is a manual for but the manual is technical and and right. not necessarily helpful when you're dealing with human beings and um, you know the art and kind of science of leadership and and motivating people and um, you know, building momentum and buy-in and community around some really difficult work um, is, uh, is challenging. And uh, I will say firmly being a principal is the most difficult job I've ever had. Mm. Um, and that's not to say that uh, I didn't say that about teaching right. <laughs> up until I became a principal. Um, you know, it's just to say, I think they're both uh, just such complex. And, and when you work in our context, emotionally complex, when, you know, when you get wrapped up in the, right. the crazy traumatic stuff that a lot of our students are grappling with as well. Yeah, and I, I wholeheartedly believe that being a principal is like impossibly difficult. I mean, me and my teacher colleagues, we, we look at our principal and all that he does and we're just like, we don't even know how he does that because um, not not just the time constraints, of course, but also just like you were saying, like um, sort of navigating the world with the, the district or state or, or, or national um, expectations and, and the legal you know requirements and then dealing with the people side of it, too, like teachers, you know, navigating that the you know, the academic standards and, and the person side of the student, um, which is which is a beast. But to be a principal and also have to manage other adults who also think that they know, you know, this goes back to last episode and in the grasp between teachers and administrators. But um, uh, for me, I think teaching is, has been a lot more fun than I expected it to be. Mm. I expected to enjoy it, yeah. but man, I love it. Like it is fun, like teaching new concepts and new skills and seeing stu uh, students develop, you know, a new awareness of things. And when it all clicks and when it all yeah. is just rolling, it's just like, you know, you know um, I don't, 
I think most teachers will say like, I'm not even cognizant of like what time of day it is because everything flies so fast and sort of, you know, that's a challenging part, you know, barely enough time to sit down and eat your lunch, but the day flies so fast. <laughs> that teacher bladder, uh, man, yeah, it's holding it for six hold hours. Hold it, man, that boy's rugged, man. But um, but it's just so fun interacting with young ones, um, yeah. young, young adults and seeing them grow, mature and, and just um, seeing them just fill up with knowledge and ability and, and, and um, you know, move on into the world and make, make their own changes. Yeah. Wouldn't trade that for anything. Yeah. That definitely is the part that I miss the most about, you know, in the work I do now where mm -hmm. I have lots of connections with adults in schools, right. but not very many connections with students. And, um, you know, it's it's when I see I still experience the feeling when I'm talking to my former students who are now, you know, 27 and finishing their master's degree right. and all this kind of stuff and i'm like man you you are grown old people yeah. and I, I i can't believe that i taught you when you were this little child right uh you know and now we could like hang out on the weekends um you know but the pride that i feel when they're you know when they're reaching these milestones in life and getting married and having children and you know um starting families and and getting jobs and changing careers right and, um you know, I, I still feel that um, when I connect with my former students and I, and I miss that I don't have more of that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so there's, there's a lot more to the origin stories, um, but we wanna hear about yours. So if you're watching this on YouTube, chime in below. If you're watching this on Facebook, add a comment below. Let us know if you are currently or formerly um, an educator of any kind, teacher, administrator, counselor, uh, let us know what was your journey. Um, we, we're really eager to see that, um, to hear those stories. All right, people, now it's time for Class Dismissed, where we like to shed light and shout out some excellent things happening in education, bring some good news. Um, Jeff, what do we have for Class Dismissed today? Well, I'm really excited about this story. We have some interesting news coming out of the community of Watts. And I know uh, probably everybody around the country has heard about the big uh, recent teacher strike here in Los Angeles, uh, the, the nation's second largest school district, uh, the right. teachers on strike for, um, uh, for a new contract and a bunch of different demands, yeah. um, which means 500,000 students in the system um, left without their teachers, right? So right. Uh, a lot going on there. And um, we have this fascinating story of a bunch of teachers, uh, or a bunch of students rather, that wanted to inject some love into this very contentious political debate, um, as you can see in this, in this video here. Check it out. Now, these students uh, are students from 107th Street Elementary School uh, in the community of Watts, uh, as I mentioned earlier. Um, they uh, are, are heard here performing uh, Katy Perry's uh, firework for their, for their adoring teachers who are picketing outside. Um, they also make posters uh, to kind of shout out and celebrate their teachers. And uh, just, a, just a beautiful um, show of love and support across uh, you know, across the uh, the picket lines, and and hopefully a, a good sign for a strong finish to the school year here um, in Los Angeles. So I want to give a shout out to the students of 107th Street Elementary School, to Principal Catherine Nelson, um, also to Assistant Principals Christina Torres and Alita Williams, and all the staff at the school um, who held it down uh, during the strike, ensuring that the the students remain safe. 
um, inside the school and uh, it's just a just a beautiful show of, of solidarity and support so shout out to uh, 107th Street Elementary in Watts. Awesome, fantastic. Alright, that's it for this episode of All of the Above. Remember to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already and check the description for links to our website for past episodes and links to our podcast and, and all that. So thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you again next time.